The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Father, we're going to jump into your word. And Super Bowl Sunday, just like all the other Sundays, are full of um, cultural excitement and joy and weird statistics about how much avocados are being eaten. And Lord, sometimes we just need these pause moments in life. But I pray that, I pray that right now um, we would pause all the other moments. That we would press into, uh, ironically, Lord, that you had planned that we talk about self-control and athleticism. On Super Bowl Sunday, you had preordained this sermon text to pop up, and I didn't think about it until just now. So, Lord, we we need you. We need a bigger vision of you to embrace the type of self-control that you make available to us to run the race that you have called us to run and to fix our eyes on the main things. Let it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget, memorize a verse, write down people to pray for. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, He's, he is uppity today, huh? I like that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. As you're flipping there, I want to tell you a story because it's going to run a little thread through uh, the sermon this morning. At the small group that I was in at the last church, the very last small group that I was in, we had, we had some interesting people there because you're in Los Angeles, so a lot of people move around that area. And one of the people in our small group, his name was Brian Clay. And Brian won the gold medal uh, in the decathlon in the Beijing Olympics in 2008. So they call that person the greatest athlete in the world because you do these 10 different sports and you are the best at all of them in an all-around scoring fashion. And I had talked to him. We had sat down. I got to hold his gold medal. And in learning his story, I found out that in the Athens Olympics in 2004, he won the silver medal in the decathlon. And I thought, what made you want to do that all over again? Because he had talked to me about the rigorous training that he had to go through. Because it wasn't just normal training as in like, you know, like jog a couple miles. He wasn't the guy that worked out from, from January 1 to February 14th. He's the guy that meticulously ate certain ounces of chicken and broccoli. And he had this supplement and that supplement. And every day was full of jumping and throwing things and launching things and javelining things. And he said, when I got second place... And I was standing there on the podium, and the person who won first place, they sang their national anthem. And he said, right then, I knew I was going back to win in the next Olympics. And I thought, right then, you committed to four years of radical training, radical commitment, doing all these horrendous things to your body. Now, he's retired at this point. Um, the, all, all that he does now is raises his kids, and he moved up, up to the northwest but I still see him running all the time. He can't stop. And in this passage this morning, the reason I mentioned that is because we're going to talk about self-control. And I know when I read this first passage, some of you are going to think, no, this is, this is a passage about evangelism. It is, but it's not, I don't believe, primarily. And it's le at least not primarily the way we think of the word evangelism. So as we go in, I just want to say one thing. If you're unfamiliar with church words, uh, evangelism just means uh, a good news. 
And you'll also hear me say the word gospel, which means good news. I'm going to say it a lot today, so I'm just forewarning you. Let's read the word of God. We're going to read verses 19 all the way through 27. This is Paul, the apostle, talking about how he's going to lead people in or bring people in to the family of God. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. He's saying this, um, if, if I need to follow Jewish rules to lead Jewish people to God, I'll do it. If I need to live like the Gentiles to lead Gentiles to Christ, I will do it. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. That's the memory verse for the weak. Now I do all this, key verse here, because of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, so that I may share in the blessings. And here comes the runners. If you're a runner, say amen. If you've been a runner for the last four weeks, say amen. If you're going to be a runner for the next eight months, say amen. That's like four people. Okay. So we're going to miss this illustration where none of us are runners. Most of us are cracker barrel inhabitants. Don't you know, you know it, that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. May God bless the reading of his word. So here's what. You read this passage and you think, okay, Paul, in the first paragraph, he's saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring people in, to win some people for Jesus. And then in the second, he flips these gears and he says, it's like this race. Don't you know that all the runners in the stadium race, but only one receives the prize? And throughout this text, there's this underlying theme. And in my preparation this week, man, was I, I convicted about an awful lot. But one of the things that Paul seems to be able to do is to control himself. He has an amazing amount of self-control, and it's all stemming from a passage that talks about how free he is. In the very beginning, he says, I am free from all. I'm not anyone's slaves, but if I need to be this, I can be this. If I need to be that, I can be that. If I need to be weak, I can be weak. And then he gives an illustration of that type of control with the illustration of an athlete. Now, I don't know about you guys, but self-control can be a difficult attribute. It's one of the nine things that the Holy Spirit produces within us, called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Hold on. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. gentleness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. I missed up the whole song. I should have done Sunday school when I was a pagan child. Okay, I got it now. 
Self-control is, is one that I know many of us battle with. And it's, it's interesting, this idea of self-control, because you oftentimes don't think of self-control being tied to freedom. Almost, we think of it as the opposite in our culture. Because someone who's controlled doesn't seem, how could they be self-controlled and very free? But here's what I've come to realize this week. That when my life is out of control, when your life is out of control, that means something else is controlling you. And that could be anything from words that you speak to a substance, to food, to your anger, whatever it is. And Paul here, in the context of what it takes to share in the gospel, which we're going to get to in a little bit, says self-control is a key component. Self-control is a synonym in the Bible for being free. If you want freedom in Christ, it's going to come when you have control over the faculties that God has given you by the power of His Spirit. When you're out of control, those things, the food, the drink, the drugs, the rage, etc., they will control you. The anxiety will control you. They will be the things that enslave you. We all have this problem, so Paul today is going to give us his secret. The secret to self-control, what it is, how you get it, and how it grows in you. It's interesting to think about, um, have any of you guys held a gold medal from the Olympics before? I know it's kind of a rare thing, um, and I took it for granted. If I knew that I was never going to see one again in the rest of my life, I would have probably put it on and taken selfies. But I was just like, oh, that's heavier than I thought it would be, and then I just gave it back. Um, it's, it's odd. These, these medals... Because you can actually go online and has-been Olympians are selling their medals. Yeah. Did you know that you could even buy things like Academy Awards from, from people who received them, but now they've fallen on hard times? People sell their awards. There's a theater near where I grew up, and they had Academy Awards that the owner of this movie theater kept on purchasing because he would find them for sale. It's interesting to me to think about this illustration about runners running for a prize because they want the crown. I cannot imagine what it would feel like, but when I looked at Brian and when we talked about it and you could see the fire in his eyes, when I said, why would you put yourself through all that again? Like, how did you know? How did you get the drive? And for him, the first drive was he was a young man who wanted to be in the Olympics. But that second drive was the one that pushed him over the top when he stood on the, the number two pedestal and looked up and they played their national anthem from their country at the Athens Olympics and he said nope that's me next time I don't think that anybody in the world could have beaten him I think that coming in second place in the Olympics in 2004 gave him the drive that he needed to win in the Beijing Olympics of 2008 what kind of control do we have in our walk with Jesus what does it mean to even have self-control? So there's different parts, right? We have, we have warring battles within us. For example, I'll give you an example that I faced this week. We have things that we will want to do, but things that we'll say, I can't do that because it conflicts with something else in me, i.e. ice cream. Right? How many of you love ice cream? Do we have any ice cream fans? Like lately, I've just been crushing this stuff. They have this Talenti Italian ice cream, and it comes in little clear plastic tubs. If you like coconut, get the Caribbean one, okay? Uh, or get the salted sea caramel one, if that's your thing. It is amazing. You know what else I have within me? A desire to be fit. 
These are incompatible things. Because I will eat a pint of ice cream, and I'll feel terrible. Or I won't eat the pint of ice cream, and I'll just be thinking about it as I'm exercising. I was in North Carolina this week for a few days in Charleston, and uh, my stepdad was paying for all of our meals. My mom said, I want you to come up for your brother's graduation from the Navy thing. And I said, sure, like, are we going out to eat? Like, how much money? She said, no, we're paying for all the food. And this is for me, my middle brother, who's built like an ox, and my youngest brother, who's also built like an ox. We're just all big people. We went out, lunch and dinner and lunch and dinner. We got sushi the last night. And when they brought it to the table, I saw my stepdad's eyes roll back into his head in fear. And he said, I've never seen this much sushi in my entire life. And we just started at one end and just lawnmowered our way through. And I got home and I was doing so good since January 1st. I was doing so good. My doctor said, lose some weight. So I was trimming down. I was trying to jog, walk, run around the block a couple times, doing some push-ups, doing some kettlebells like some of you do. And I got all the way down to 217 pounds. It's good, like, fun weight for me. I stepped on the scale this morning. I weighed 227 pounds. 227 pounds. My, my two wills were colliding. The, the word self-control, it just means that you have command of yourself. And clearly, I lost command of myself at some point along this trip to North Carolina. It could have been the cheesy shrimp and grits. It could have been the bison burgers or the sushi or the eggs and the omelets and the donuts. I don't know where I lost it, but somewhere in there it got lost. The crown, the crown that the people of this world are trying to achieve, that the runners of this world are trying to achieve, will perish. Many of you are living for things that will perish at the end of this life. And if you read this, you might think, yeah, we need to run the race so that we get the crown that does not perish. And I think what's interesting is that most people, if you just read this on the surface, you think that he's talking about, it must be salvation, like the crown that is salvation, because that one will not perish. I don't think that's the case here. Because if that were the case, if Paul was saying, you've got to work really hard, you've got to be self-controlled, and then you get the crown, that would contradict almost everything Paul has said in the rest of the Bible. Every other letter of Paul, he says, we are saved because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you do. We're saved because of his sacrifice, not your sacrifice. We're saved because of his death, not your ability to control or command yourself around. So I asked myself, well, what is this? What does it mean? What is Paul talking about? If he's not saying that this, the way to salvation is self-control, running the good race, I want to hear it at the end of my life. Well done, good and faithful servant. We've all heard that verse, but what does this mean in terms of this text this morning? Well, the Bible is going to tell us some very interesting things about control that can be very different. See, in the, the ancient times, they tried to control their body and their emotions and their internal desires, like the need for sex and food and, and simple pleasures. And the Greeks said, no, it's all about getting their emotions under control and being focused with your mind. And we have people like that nowadays. But 
more predominantly I see, especially in younger generations now, it's not so much about controlling your, your primal things. It's about discovering yourself and finding out who you are, what makes you happy, and letting that aspect of your desires control yourself. It's the opposite of the ancient Greek ways. The Bible says it's, it's not an either-or thing. The Bible wants you to have freedom where everything is rightly ordered as it is supposed to be. The Bible wants you to be self-controlled and disciplined like a runner, not only in your mind, but in your emotions, in your heart. And when the Bible uses the word heart, it's not like we. We usually use the word heart and mean emotions. The Bible uses heart and it means all of your desires and the things that are in you that make you a person that you are. And this is where it comes to this interesting aspect where self-control ties to evangelism that ties to what the fullness of life in Christ can look like. Freedom and self-control is rightly ordering your passions. For some of you, the ice cream passion will be the supreme passion. For, for others of you, the fitness passion will be the passion. For, for some of you, let's get off the ice cream thing, let's get on the athlete thing. The ability to eat chicken and vegetables for prolonged periods of time without cheat days. I think that's only achieved to the level, obviously, that my friend achieved it when you're standing in second place at an Olympic ceremony knowing that you are the best loser. And then he's driven to do things that I've never seen anyone else do in my life. To put his life in such order to go back in four years and win the competition outright. Maybe for you, the battles are these things at home where you have a desire to be in control, but you also want a happy, peaceful marriage or a happy, peaceful home. So you battle between anger and peace and words of kindness or words of force. St. Augustine once said that all sin is is disordered love. When love gets out of order, when you love the wrong thing first. And that's when we sang that last song this morning, what I was just thinking about. Because if you want self-control, you have to get in order in your life the things that are the most lovely, the things that are worth loving the most. Because at the end of the day, going back to my own sin, if I want to consume more of that salted caramel talenti ice cream, the longer I live, the better chance I have of consuming more of it. Not in one sitting, but over the span. So what's more important to me? It's like when those of us in here with kids have kids for the first time, all of a sudden everything changes when you have children. I never wore helmets growing up. That wasn't my thing in my generation. No one wore helmets, except for the people that got made fun of by us who were not wearing helmets. And as soon as I had kids, anytime I was like out in a bike ride, out in my skateboard, just putting on the helmet. And now I get made fun of by kids who don't wear helmets. My priorities changed. Because I had a different order of things that I loved and cared about and were passionate about. In this passage, there's something that's, that you might misread. Why does Paul talk about self-control? Why does Paul give us this thing about saying, I can become like a, a Jewish person or a Gentile. I, I can become weak. I can make my body do what it needs to do to bring people in. 
Now, if you're only reading this on a surface level, you're going to think that he's talking about evangelism, but he is talking about so much more than just leading someone to Jesus. In verse 23, we have the key of what's happening here. Paul says, I do all of this. I do all of this control. I do all of this thinking about how, how can I reach people? How can I bring people into this? Because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. Okay, you're reading that thinking, wait, what is that? just means he wants to share the gospel, right? No. It's, it's more than that. Paul is telling us to run the race. Paul is telling us to have self-control because the ultimate prize is that we get to share. And, and that word share could be translated like participate. And it's a verb that means to share with others. To give, he wants to give the good news about Jesus with others. The reason why he will do whatever it takes is because his joy and the blessings that he has when he shares the good news with someone else is what gives his life incredible purpose and satisfaction and meaning. The reason why Paul will discipline his life, it says he will bring his body into strict control, is because he gets to share the good news about what Jesus has done for him. Share. It's, a, it's funny because it comes from a word that I think we all know nowadays that 20 years ago none of us knew. Sink. Sink koinanas. Sink up. Now all of us sync up our phones. We sync up our computers. We sync up our iClouds. Paul wanted to connect people in to the blessing that he had in Jesus. If you want self-control, it has to come first by who you're connected to and how you're connecting others to him. We all, all of us in here, we all share news every week. All of us in here, if you want to know what you're passionate about, just listen to what you talk about most. Listen to what you complain about most. Listen to what you hope for most. That's the thing that you're living for. Paul lived in a radical way for Jesus. Unlike many people that have lived since him. And he's telling you and telling me that if you want, if you want to have the true blessed life, it comes from being so known by Jesus that you will do whatever it takes to live for him in such a way that you're sharing the blessings of being in him with others. The blessings of being in him, we could go, that could be a, a lifetime sermon series. But I just want to ask you this question. Are Christians known as the most joyful people? Are, are Christians known as the most loving people? If you look at Christian marriages on the whole, do you think those marriages are what I want? Why are we not, why are we all thinking, no, that's not how I, I see it. I see miserable people. And not all of you are miserable. Like the first three rows here tend to be more joy-filled people. I'm just, that's, that's a, and there's some clapping going on somewhere back there today. I don't know who was doing it. Somebody's got some joy. And clapping isn't a sign. But you guys know your own relationships. You guys know your own lives. Are you in your life saying, I have so many blessings. I just want to share with someone else. I just love the way that Jesus has come in and he's changed this about me. And even when I go through hard times, I find so much peace. And even when I'm struggling, it feels like this presence is around me and God has put people in my life to encourage me. 
And you know what Jesus has done for my marriage or in my parenting or in my job or my lack of job? He's been with me through thick and thin. And there's nothing better than Jesus. Has he, has he gripped you like this? Or is your Christian life the one that's just, it's okay. I mean, I just kind of like read the Bible, but I don't get much out of it. I pray and the prayers bounce back down to me. Does someone look at your life and say, man, that person is radically loving? Because that's the, the boiled down commandment. Love God with their heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, honestly, ask your, if you're here with a close friend or spouse or if you don't know someone, just meet someone and get to know them. But if you're here with someone that knows you, ask them. Say, hey, when you look at me, am I, am I becoming more of a loving person? More of a joy-filled person? More of an unshakable, Jesus-centered person? Or am I still the same cantankerous person you met 16 years ago? Let them answer, but don't be mean in return. Take your walls of defense and stuff them way down. Paul is saying this when he says that the key, the key to leading people to Jesus, it's not just how much you speak about Jesus. Because if, if it was only a mental exercise of mental control, we could study rhetoric and apologetics, how to defend your faith, get the best arguments to attack people here and there. Paul is saying that there are these blessings that come with being known by Jesus and it's overflowing from him. It's the same thing that happens to you when you go to a restaurant and it's so amazing that you want to share it with someone you love. Or you see a movie and it's so incredible, you're like, you've got to go see this movie. Or on the flip side, you see a movie and it's so terrible, you say, don't even waste your money. Why do we share things like that? Because it's in the sharing of our experience that joy finds its fullest picture. That connection finds its fullest picture. Now, if you want to have self-control, it has to be rooted in the type of person you are in totality. It's not about how much you can talk about Jesus. It's not about how much you can quote scripture. It's how much do people, if they know you, if they look into your heart of hearts, they look at you and they say, whatever you've got, I want. Whatever Jesus is doing in you, like that looks good. That's what Paul means when he says, share the blessings that are in the gospel of Christ. He's overflowing. If we took a magnifying glass into your life, not just zooming in on the sins, but looking at the amount of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I got them all that time. <laughs> looking at those in your life and saying, I see that. That's the blessing of Christ. That's the crown that does not perish. It's not just talking about salvation in here, because if it were, like I said, Paul would be contradicting so much. And there's a key. If you want to learn how to run this way, it's not just saying, that's it. Pastor spoke about self-control. Today I'm going home and I am self-controlled. Today I'm kale, not ice cream. For spiritual comparisons. He gives us in another illustration about a race. God gives us another picture. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Here's the key. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you want to know 
You say, how do I share in the blessings? How do I get those blessings of being filled with such joy in who God is and who I am and how God sees me that it actually changes my desires? It reorders the things that I love so that I begin loving eternal things more than these temporary things. How do I get that? You're not going to get it just through spiritual cracking down and white knuckling. It all starts with looking and putting our eyes on Jesus, but not just Jesus in the general sense. Not just saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I believe in Jesus. There's a very specific emotional drive that God wants you to learn from Hebrews chapter 12 right here. It's interesting that Jesus is the one who we're to fix our eyes on. But have you ever asked yourself, like, why did Jesus have to come? Because I didn't grow up in the church, I've asked all types of questions that I think sometimes church people don't ask because we've just, we've had it from Gerber food to the chewed up food to the soft foods to the pasta. We've been having the Christian doctrine fed to us. So some of us don't even ask the questions why, but we should ask why in the world did Jesus have to come? Why couldn't God just say, everyone's perfect? We, we know like in the Bible talks about sin. And you can define sin in many ways. Today we're defining it as love out of order. When you love something that's secondary as primary, that's another way to define sin. And God wants to reorder love into the correct order that the fabric of the universe was created for. And he wants you to do it in a way that's running toward him. And in Hebrews 12, it says, here's how you do it. You keep your eye on Jesus. But not just generic Jesus. Jesus who is the source source and perfecter of our faith. You want to know where you get faith from? It's from Jesus. The faith that leads to being filled with the Spirit of God, that leads to growing in love, growing in joy, etc., etc., it comes from you fixing your eyes on Jesus, saying, I can't make faith on my own. I need the source. I need to plug in. John 15 says he's the vine, and i got to connect to him to have a life. And then it says something that might might hit some of you like it hit me this, this week again. And I've, I've read this many, many times. And it still pierces me. See, Jesus. Jesus ran the race first. Jesus is the only one who ran the race who deserved the crown of life. But at the end of his life, he didn't get the crown of life. Right? What did he get? The crown of what? thorns. He took the crown of thorns that I deserved and the death that I deserved and gives me the crown of life as he plugs me into himself to give me faith and to to bring me along in salvation, to give me the life where I don't have to be like I was in my early years as a teenager, driven by anger, where I don't have to be like I was in my 20s and 30s, driven by just foolishness and stupidity and pride and ego. Jesus says, I see you, and I'm going to give you more faith, and I'm going to strip things away, and it's going to hurt, but it's for your good. And you know what's so interesting about that verse in Hebrews? Because it says, for the joy that was laid before him. And I, I often remind myself, what joy did Jesus have to come to earth for? What joy? Did he have to come to earth to live for the Father and to be in relationship with him? No. He already had that in heaven. He didn't have to come to earth for that. Did he have to come to the earth to to do what? To bring some new glory to the Father? Did he have to come to earth 
for, for, to be worshipped. No, none of those. He was worshipped in heaven. He was connected to the Father in heaven. Why did Jesus, what joy drove Jesus to earth? Was it loving the Father more? No, he already had that. You want to know what his joy was? Do you, know, you want to know what his prize was? It's you. You're the prize. We are the prize. Jesus, the only thing that's different that he could not accomplish from sitting on the throne in heaven is saying, I love these people, but they have chosen to love out of order. They've chosen to not love us, Father, so I'm going down. I'm going down as a human, and I'm going to run the perfect race so that when I am done, I will take the crown of thorns, and I'm going to have these people brought to me. Lord, we're going to draw them in, and I'm going to give them faith to look at me. I'm going to give them faith that changes them. And when they see that, when they see what love ordered looks like, they're going to become these people that we intended them from the, the beginning, in the garden. They're going to go back to the way that it was. When you realize that you were the joy that was set before Jesus, you were the joy that he ran for, you were the precious thing on his mind and heart when he ran the race. And you realize that none of us should ever get the crown, but we get it by faith in him. All of a sudden, hopefully some of you can have a small refocus of love ordered rightly. Because all of these things we talk about, these, these principles in Christianity, self-control, good marriages, kids, whatever, giving, generosity, serving, all of these things. They all have to flow out of not us doing it to get God's approval, but us doing it because we have God's approval from the cross of Christ. Not us doing it to earn the crown of life, us doing it because Jesus earned the crown of life and took the crown of thorns that we deserved. This is what Paul wants to share about. This is the type of Christian leader that he wants to be. So when people want to, to lead or to serve in a ministry, I'm not as concerned with how much they know or how much training they've had. I want to see the fingerprints of Jesus on their life. Sometimes it's hard, though, because we've learned to pretend. We've learned how to give the appearance of running the race like Jesus. And some of us just do it once a week. I got this shirt. I'm going to wear it every Sunday in February. If you haven't read it yet, take a moment to read it. Because if you're only connecting to Jesus, if you're only looking to him today as the source of your faith, as the perfecter of your faith, as the runner of your race, it's not going to sustain you. You might be a decent person for 30 minutes after the service ends, but let life come in. Because that's the other realistic aspect of these, this illustration of running. When I say I run, I'm being very generous to myself, okay? Um, I've seen some of you run. Not in real life. Like, I'm not, like, behind you, like, I see you, you know. Um, but, like, I've seen some of you, like, on, on the Instagram or the Facebook. I've seen Don, like, when you were doing those, what are those things? Iron Iron Woman? Iron Woman's? Whatever they're called. You're a woman. I don't want to call it Iron Man. It's, like, sexist, you know. We're in 2020 now. Iron Woman. I'd see these videos of, like, just people riding bikes and exercising. Here's how my exercising goes. I live in a loop that's, that's three quarters of a mile. When I start running... I am like confident. I'm like Balto out of the gates, okay? 
by the first turn, I literally, this is not an exaggeration, this is not hyperbole, I feel like my heart is going to explode out of my chest. And I know some of you are saying, well, that's because you don't run regularly. And I'm saying, yes, because I choose to lengthy ice cream over running most days. And it just feels like it's beating out of my chest. And if I keep going the whole three quarters of a mile, don't judge me. If I get to the end, I literally do one of those things where I have to go over. I just start heaving for oxygen. Like there's not enough oxygen in the atmosphere. Because when you exercise, when you run the race, life will be difficult. There's a reason why Paul is using this illustration. It's not just to talk about the prizes. It's because it's something that all of us have either seen or done at some point in our life. Whether you were in third grade at the playground and you look over at your buddy and you say, let's race. And when you won that race in third grade, you were like, I'm the faster one. Or you lost, you said, I'm worthless. I must train. We've all done this. It's an experience that we can all press into. And this idea of running is in the Bible enough times to where all you need to do once, and if you're medically able, like go for a run today and say, Lord, teach me something about you in this running. And here's what God teaches me every time. My knees are not built for this. My heart is not built for this. My lungs don't have the capacity for this. Florida is far too humid for this. There's so many things that are trying to beat against me. And that's why it makes it so much sweeter when it goes to the spiritual correlation, when it goes to what it means to share in the blessings of Christ, it means that we're so fixed on him that our life is overflowing, not because we are amazing runners. Because if you want to know what we are like spiritually, our spiritual existence is probably closely approximated to my physical ability to run down a street. And if you want to see it, I'll give you all a show. I'll let you know when I'm going to run down Fishhawk Boulevard. You won't miss me. It's going to look like a baby giraffe with a limp just going down. That's all it's going to look like. And you're going to say, he looks so foolish. Well, guess what? Spiritually, that's all of us. Jesus is the only one who ran the perfect race. And if we fix our eyes on Jesus, if we throw off those things that hinder us from running toward him, if we tune out the noise of this world and tune in the, the cheers from the cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, then all of a sudden our love gets reordered. The money doesn't matter as much. The house doesn't matter as much. The education, the child's achievement doesn't matter as much. Our marriage doesn't matter as much. What matters most is the most important thing for us, the source and perfecter of our faith who took our crown of thorns and gave us his crown of life. And all we do is look to him, love him, and then he begins to order things in your life. People ask me, how do I get a better this? How do I get a better that? And 100% of the time, not 99.9% of the time, 100% of the time, it's get your loves in order. And you don't do it by trying. You do it by gazing and looking upon him who ran the race for you and for me. And then you know what happens? Evangelism. Then it's not like I have to tell this person, this is how you come to Jesus. I have to, I have to open up this argument of perfection and, and this rhetoric that draws them in like Shakespeare. No, it's just they look at your life and they say, that, that. If nobody's been looking at your life and saying that, that for some time, Perhaps today is the day you look at your life and say, is that in me? Have I just been riding the bike of Christian appearance? Have I not been resting with my eyes looking toward the Savior who ran the race for me? 
Have I not been growing in love for him and for others? It changes. It changes you. So if you know someone, ask them. Uh, there's not a ton by way of practicality. In the very next passage in Corinthians, Paul alludes to these. There's three things that he alludes to. If you want to grow in this type of being blessed and living this life that flourishes, the things that he alludes to in the next passage, if, you, if we break it down next week, uh, is this. Simple. Bible. It's like getting in the Bible, hiding God's word in your heart, uh, being in community, which is important. Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So like daily community. And then pressing into an actual, um, pressing into troubles. There's no other way to say it. Bible, community, and troubles. Those are the three things that will grow self-control, that will grow dependence in you. Because nobody looks to Jesus as much as they do when they're in trouble. It's been a weird week um, for any basketball fans out there, right? If you're a basketball fan, or even if you're just not a basketball fan, I'm, we all heard about Kobe Bryant's death. And um, Jackson and I were talking about it because we've been into basketball, and I follow basketball during the season. And, uh, and I told him, I said, his, his daughter died with him. She was 13 and he was 41. Jackson's pretty sharp in math because we've been planning, talking about his 13th par birthday. I want to take him somewhere, wherever he wants to go in the world. I just want to take him on a trip. And he, he said, Daddy, how old are you going to be when I'm 13? I said, 41. And he goes, maybe we should do it when I'm 14. Because <laughs> we've just been talking about, um, about death. And uh, my grandma went to the hospital this last week. She had a collapsed diaphragm and fluid in her lungs, and they don't know what's going on with her yet. And um, you know what matters for the families of all those who are lost in the helicopter crash right now, families who are, are left behind here? Do you, do you know what matters for me and for my brothers and my mom when, you're, when our grandma's Lungs are filling with fluid and nobody knows why. And there's bad blood work coming back and diaphragms aren't working. You know what doesn't matter? Pretty much anything except for eternity. Eternity. Where are they? Where would she go? It's the wrong question. We've functioned like that for too many years as a church. Where are you going to go when you die? How about this? Who holds you in his hands right now? How is your love ordered today? Some of you, maybe like me, need a love reordering on the daily. That's what we call repenting. Saying, I've loved the wrong thing. Lord, I'm, I'm choosing to love you because you ran the race. I'm choosing to love you because you took crowns that pierced you and gave me crowns that blessed me. I'm choosing to love you because you were spit on and I was embraced. It's not about how good you can be and how white-knuckly you can spiritually grab onto something. It's about how much you look and fix your eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, knowing that he, for the joy set before him, said, Father, I'm going down. I'm going down to get Greg. I'm going down to get Luis. I'm going down to get Jay. I'm going down to get Amber. I'm going down to get Charlie. I'm going down there to get Truck. I'm going down there because I love him, and nothing's going to stop me. Let's pray. Father, I have a feeling that in this room, there's some disordered love. Lord, I pray that you would soften hearts that are within community this week. That we would be able to, because of this 
concept to be iron that sharpens iron. I pray that husbands and wives would not be defensive because I've invited them to, to open up and say, is this the type of person that you are or that I am? I pray that there would be some very sober glances and that they wouldn't be filled with shame and judgment, but that all of the sin, all of the failures, all of the crowns of thorns, all of the spiritual beatings that we deserved, all of the wrath that we deserve, God, that we would rightly put it on the cross and that we would rightly accept that when you see us in Jesus, our sin is removed from us as far as east is from the west. That when you see us, we have the crown of life upon our head, not because of our ability to control ourselves, but because of your ability to run the race for us. Lord, help us to be a people so saturated and obsessed with this gospel, this good news, that people that come in contact with us will say that. There's something about that person. And let it be the fragrance that draws them into this family that we may share the blessings that you have given us. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, amen.